All right. Uh, welcome to the, the Gun Forum, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Cape Ann. Uh, my name is Hannah Kimberly, and I am the president of the League. And I'd like to thank the Gloucester High School students who helped with research and publicity for our forum, uh, as well as Principal Cook and Gloucester High for hosting us. And I'd also like to thank our panelists who are coming to this forum with different uh, points of view. Um, first, we have Jim Wallace, who is president of the Massachusetts Gun Owners Action League. And then we have attorney Mark Nestor, who is a decorated Vietnam veteran and commander of the Lester S. Wass American Legion Post 3 here in Gloucester. And Gloucester resident Gregory Gibson, and Gloucester resident Gregory Gibson, who is author of Gone Boy, which focuses on his coming to grips with his son Galen's death and a 1992 school shooting at Bard College at Simmons Rock in the Berkshires. And a big thanks to our former mayor and US Army officer, John Bell, for moderating the forum for us here today. The League of Women Voters has a strong stance on gun control. The League believes that the proliferation of handguns and semi-automatic assault weapons in the United States is a major health and safety threat to its citizens. And the League supports a strong federal measures to limit the accessibility and regulate gun ownership of these weapons by private citizens. They support licensing procedures for gun ownership by private citizens to include a waiting period per, for background checks, personal identity verification, gun safety education, and annual license renewal. But today, we're not here to advocate for that position. We're here to present a fair and respectful forum for the ideas on different sides of this issue. And I will turn this over to Mr. Bell, thank you. Good. Wow, um, really good seeing everyone here today. Um, good Lord, um, the weather. Um, and we've got a lot going on in the community as well. We have the Middle Street Walk. We have the Army-Navy game at noon. Good luck. Um, we also have, um, um, today is the uh, memorial reception for Judge David Harrison, who I know is close to a lot of folks, include myself in the room. Um, uh, for the record, I am not a member of the League of Women Voters. Um, I, only say, I only say that because when I was a freshman counselor back in the 70s, I thought it would be politically correct to join the League, and I got rejected. <laughs> um, <laughs> The world has changed, <laughs> but I, I am not. And in fact, I am, um, they're lucky I'm not. Um, we're, we've had uh, a slideshow, this um, presentation up here in the background that has been put together by three Gloucester High School uh, students, uh, Calvin DeVecchio, uh, Abigail Cook, and uh, Olivia, Hagen Lopez, and uh, it's uh, really well done, and um, if you have a chance to see it, uh, please do. We also have, um, just to let you know, first of all, this is the first time any of us have done this, so 
beware. <laughs> um, and I'm glad the League brought us all together. I really am. Because this subject, as we all know, is um, far, from, um, far from settling. Um, the um, the um, we're, what we're going to do is um, two things. We're going to have the panel, which we're so good to have Greg, Mark, and Jim here today, uh, especially uh, all of them have been so uh, good and successful in their, their own environments, and we'll talk more about that. So we've got um, Greg and Mark, Jim here. We're going to um, have each of them, I'll give a very brief thumbnail background on each, which um, um, I will read. Um, they will get up and talk for five to ten minutes. Um, and um, then during that period of time, we have two women, high school women, where are they? They're here, around here. One's up here, and there's another over here. They have cards that they have put out. Please do not hesitate to write any questions, any comments, and ship them down. They'll pick them up and ship them down here. If you want to sign your name or any group affiliation, uh, please feel free to do it. And we will um, take those cards and read them uh, to the uh, three gentlemen that, that we have here and get their views on those. If um, with, um, after a period of time, um, if uh, this uh, technically is supposed to get over at 11.30, uh, if in fact there is no conversation coming this way relative to remarks or comments on those cards, um, we will bring the uh, discussion to a halt. The three gentlemen have agreed to also stay here afterward for individual questions or comments if you want to have a conversation. They've been really good to say, uh, we're going to stay out of the rain, we're going to stay here and answer any, any uh, questions that you might have, which I, I think is great. So does anyone have any questions before we start? Good. And again, thank you, thank you all uh, for being here, and, and thank you for the lead. Um, the first uh, person that we're going to hear from is um, Greg Gibson, who I know so many of you know as a Lanesville uh, resident and just an outstanding member of our community. Uh, Greg is a Navy veteran. Uh, he served the country from 1967 to 1971. He's a gun owner. He's an NRA member and a longtime resident of Gloucester. His son Galen was killed in a school shooting that took place on December 14th, 27 years ago today. Um, and uh, it's at this time that um, I'd like to introduce you to um, Greg Gibson. Greg, for comments. Well, thanks everybody, and thanks for uh, coming out uh, on a day like this. Um, I haven't been in the high school in uh, quite a while, but it brings back a lot of memories. All three of my kids uh, went here. In fact, uh, Galen, my oldest son, uh, 
uh, was here in 1989 and 1990, I think, and was uh, terrifically bored by the uh, curriculum as it existed at that time. And he got an offer from a, what's called an early college, where they take uh, gifted students out of high school and, and put them in an environment and give them college-level work and so they can graduate college uh, two years ahead of time. And um, Galen did that. He was very happy there. Uh, but not everybody had the same uh, reaction. One of his fellow students had a psychotic break and um, shot up the school in 1992. Galen was the last one killed before this kid's uh, uh, gun jammed, of course, being a newbie psycho killer, he had no idea how to operate the thing, which probably saved a lot of lives. He just put down his weapon and somehow uh, was not killed himself. Um, but it took me a, quite a while to realize that uh, all this was made possible by a loophole in Massachusetts law, or what we characterize as a loophole. It was just a, uh, a fluke. Uh, Everybody remember Kevin McHale, the old Celtics, uh, I guess he was a forward, wasn't he? He was out duck hunting on Cape Cod with his friend Senator Robert Durand and he ran out of shells. And he went to the local uh, sporting goods store to get some more shells and was shocked to find out that he was not allowed to purchase uh, guns or ammunition in Massachusetts because he did not have a Massachusetts license. This kind of upset uh, McHale, as it probably would upset anybody, uh, he thought everything, was, everything should be the same uh, throughout the United States. So he prevailed on Senator Durand to uh, repair this breach in the law so that uh, anyone who was in conformity with the licensing laws of their own state could then purchase guns or ammunition in Massachusetts. And this law was duly passed, and an irregularity in uh, federal law was repaired, or so they thought. Uh, the kid who did the shooting at Simon's Rock was only 18, and in Massachusetts at that time would not have been able to purchase a, uh, purchase a gun, but according to the laws of Montana, his home state, um, he was able to buy a gun. And the, the gun dealer whom I talked to said, in essence, you know, his hands were tied. There was nothing he could do. That was the law, and the law was the law. So um, he went and shot up the school. Uh, Subsequent to that, they did change the law back to the um, old law, but of course it was too late for Galen and too late for the other person who got killed and too late for the five people who were seriously wounded by this uh, character. So I'm just giving you this background because um, I guess I've been studying this matter for 27 years and I've, I've come to a some conclusions. One of the conclusions is that uh, facts and numbers and statistics will tell you anything. Jim will show you, prove to you with numbers that things in Massachusetts are getting worse crime-wise, and I will show you with equally valid numbers that Massachusetts has the lowest uh, gun murder rate per 100,000 in the United States, and we can argue about that forever. But one thing I have learned from my own experience is that uh, Gun laws can save lives. Um, I've been advocating for gun laws for 27 years, and uh, I've also come to understand that the answer to the so-called gun violence problem is not just in legislation. Gun laws can help, 
But what we're talking about is a cultural situation that involves so many things, it's such a complex issue, that there's no one answer, no one law, no one point of view that's going to um, stop people from being killed. The other thing that I know from my own experience is that uh, those administrators let this thing happen because this was 1992. There hadn't been many school shootings. These guys were clueless about uh, active shooter protocol, about warning signs, about all the ways you can intervene. Uh, and I'm morally certain that if they had had that knowledge, I'm not saying that a red flag law would have stopped this thing, but just the existence of such a law would have provided an educational framework for these idiots who let this kid do what he did to intervene, to do something. So I do think that uh, legislation isn't solving everything and education is a uh, key uh, piece in this. Um, having said that, I guess I'll sit down. Thank you, thank you, Greg. Thank you. Um, the next person we're going to hear from is our panelist, Mark Nestor. Um, Mark um, is uh, married, has two children. Um, he graduated from um, uh, Penn State in uh, 1973 with a BA in political science, and then he got his um, uh, law education at uh, Boston University in 1976. He's been a sole practitioner uh, since 1977 to the present time. He served in the military from 1967 to 1993. He was in the U.S. Army, the Army National Guard, and the U.S. Army Reserves. He was in Vietnam from 1969 to 1970 as a helicopter pilot with the 4th Infantry a division awarded the uh, Distinguished Flying uh, Cross, the Bronze Star, the Air Medal with 20 Oak Clusters. He was named Person of the Year in 2016 by the KPN Chamber of Commerce and was awarded the Myra L. Hendrick Outstanding Older American Award in 2019 by Senior Care, awarded the Paul Harris uh, Fellow Unsung Hero Award by Rotary District 7930 in 2019. It's uh, with great pleasure that I introduce uh, Mark Nestor. Thank you. I'll try to keep it brief because I believe the purpose of this forum is really education and for us to be able to hopefully answer some questions that the audience has. My position has always been a kind of strategic place in the middle is that as a veteran with over 20 plus years, I have a firm supporter of the Second Amendment. However, I have serious concerns regarding accessibility to weapons. 99.9% .9 of the people who own weapons to include, I would say, the bulk of the members who are here tonight are responsible, safe operators of weapons. Unfortunately, there's a one-tenth of one percent 
the seem to gain, be able to game the system and go through loophole, loopholes as far as access to weapons. And that's where I draw the line more than anything else. I believe people should own weapons, but I believe there are certain people that should own, shouldn't open we own weapons. I get concern when a Saudi national can get access to weapons solely because he has a hunting license, which means technically there are thousands of people within this United States that are foreign nationals to include terrorists that have it, and the, the FBI has been screaming about this exemption for years and nothing's happened. I get upset when the Violence Against Women Act is expired and isn't extended, which allows certain individuals who shouldn't have access to weapons to have access to weapons. Most of the people should. My concern is sometimes that I've seen there's a divisiveness between those who support gun control and those who support slowly the Second Amendment with nothing in between. I'm hoping a form like this will allow all comments to be heard and to understand that there is a medium wherein both sides can get together for a united front, which hopefully is to allow the bulk of the nation who has weapons legally to keep them, but for those who shouldn't have weapons to not get them. You see it through the school shootings, which got me actively involved in this, and when I see issues like that and how people are hurt like that, um, I'm concerned that I hope both sides can get together and say, okay, those who shouldn't, shouldn't. And it's not a slippery slope down for the Second Amendment. If we do that, it's the protection of our children and our families, and that's all I'm seeking. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. The um, next panelist is uh, Jim L. Wallace. Uh, um, Jim is the um, um, executive director of the Gun Owners Action League of Massachusetts goal since uh, 2005. He's an avid sportsman and gun owner. He grew up in Groveland and he served our country in the United States Army from 1983 to 1986. As the executive director of Goal, Jim steered important legislation protecting the rights of the Commonwealth sportsmen and gun owners and continuing to protect the rights from being usurped by unnecessary restrictive licensing and regulatory uh, processes. In 2014, Jim's work led to the passage of Chapter 284 of the Acts of 2014 in Massachusetts. This historical piece of legislation included uh, new laws addressing mental health, national instant check system compliance, school safety, reforms to protect lawful gun owners, and many sections aggressively going after the criminals, uh, criminal use and trafficking of firearms. Jim has been a guest of a countless media appearances locally and nationally and has become sought after guest speaker throughout Massachusetts and also national events. Jim lives in Newburyport with his wife, Holly. They have a daughter, Caitlin, and a brand new grandson born this past July. Uh, it's with great pleasure I introduce Jim Wallace. I did. I did. 
You know, it figures we schedule, and uh, I want to thank everybody for working so hard to get this. And I wake up this morning and have laryngitis, and my wife went, woohoo! But, um, but anyway, I'll try to be short because I'm going to try to save my, my voice for the questions. But since I've been working for Goal, I, I've really tried to change how we operate things. And that really came to fruition in 2014, where we really rolled up our sleeves after Newtown and said, what can we do to tighten things up for people who shouldn't have guns? And it's been my push for a long time to not focus on the thing, but to focus on the human element. Whether you want to talk about gun accidents, which are really rare in Massachusetts, or you want to talk about suicide prevention, or you want to talk about crime prevention, it's the human element that really needs to be addressed, and it's something that continues to be failed upon in Massachusetts especially, but also across the country. Uh, case in point, in my opinion, the red flag bill, one of the worst pieces of legislation that's ever come out of the state house because it identifies people in trouble and then sends them home. So whether it's your next mass shooter or your next person who you're afraid of suicide, the bill does absolutely nothing to help those people or to further make sure that they're staying out of trouble or not in places where they should be. For instance, if you've identified somebody who you think is the next mass murderer, that bill only takes away their legal gun. If they don't have a legal gun, there's nothing that bill can do. But you've identified somebody you think is the next mass killer, okay, can they work in a school? Can they be a teacher? Can they be a doctor? Can they drive a tractor trailer truck? Or on the opposite spectrum, you think you've identified somebody that's suicidal. Okay, if they don't have a legal gun, that bill does nothing. It can't even be used. Well, in Massachusetts, we know for a fact that suicide by hanging and suffocation is three times that of suicide by gun. So what have we done for that person? Absolutely nothing. We haven't done anything. So the human element is really where we need to focus on all three of those things. And unfortunately, it's just not being done. The, the other thing I want to comment on before we get to the questions is I'm so glad all of you are here because this is something that we have forgotten how to do. I cannot tell you the difference between working on that bill in 2014 and working that state house now. Back then, what's that, five years ago? We all rolled up our sleeves, got together, sat down at a table, and for almost six months worked and worked and worked and worked until we could come up with something not everybody agreed with, but we passed. The last couple of sessions, we haven't even had a seat at the table because nobody wants to hear the other side anymore. I was amazed reading some of the social media accounts of this very gathering where people said, I should not have the right to be here because the gun owners shouldn't have a voice in this. This half a million of us in Massachusetts, we're not going away. If you want to talk about guns and you want to exclude the people who own them, well, why else do you think they're going to be upset about things and not want to talk about things? So it's incumbent upon us as adults, and I'm actually kind of sad because I thought there were going to be a lot of high school students here because they should see how we can do this and do this in an adult manner and sit down and have conversations. The three of us could probably sit down for, I don't know how many hours this afternoon over a beer and some ribs maybe and just continue to talk, but at least we're talking. And I'll give you one last example. I'm actually a, a regular speaker at Brandeis University 
And it's not about my issue or our issue. It's about they have a class on advocacy, so they have guest speakers. Well, a few years ago, it turns out it was right after the Trump election and things were so hot and heavy. And this was January. I showed up to do the class, and students were demanding that I be escorted off campus because I was a gun owner. In their eyes, I was a white supremacist. There's something wrong there, okay? And I'll tell you a quick story about that, too. Somebody a couple of years ago tried to make that connection to Gun Owners Action League in a white supremacist group. And we had a small rally out in the state house, and I mean small. There was only 20 people there. And the press was all over my staff, and I couldn't be there. But the press was all over my staff about, you know, explain your connection to this white supremacy group. And my media person, who isn't a goal employee, but she's a good friend of mine, she contracts with us, and she got in front of the media and said, listen, if, if you include me, there's only five of us. His trainer is, happens to be Jewish. His chief of staff is African-American. And if it matters, I'm a lesbian. How, how diverse do you want five people to be? You know, but suddenly we're white supremacists because we're gun owners. This here is extraordinarily important. We have to remember how to do this and teach other people how to do it. Even if we disagree, this is how America is supposed to work. Thank you. Thank you. Um, great. Great opening. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, do we have uh, any cards with questions, comments? Um, we have come on down and pick these up. We've got um, these great high school students who are going to be available to help out. And by the way, keep, keep the cards coming throughout um, as discussion continues or if something pops into your head that was uh, clogged up by the rain today and you say, oh, I've got that, and put it on a, put it on a piece of paper and bring it, bring it up here. Um, what we're going to do is the, um, the panelists are going to stay at the table. Um, I'm going to um, uh, read the question. And um, they are, um, whichever one raises their hands, or if all of them raise their hands, they're all welcome to speak on the questions. So they will, those, um, those will be here in a moment. Yes, a question? You got one? You need a pen? Oh, sorry. Okay, does anyone else need a pen out there? Pens. Okay, how are we doing over there? Uh, we've got one for pickup in, over here in the corner. Great, right here. Right here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. No problem. Thank you very much. 
Okay, this is a uh, question. Um, this is question number one. Can you explain the misperception people have about assault weapons with quotes around them? Where does the term come from? How, how do you, how do you do something about it? How do you define it, I think? Is that it? I think that's define it. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, Did you, you get the essence of the question over here? Okay. Yeah. Um, we just go down the table? If you want, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, this is one of those questions that um, I can prove I'm right, the Jim can prove he's right, and we can go around about this all the time. Uh, assault weapons account for an infinitesimal um, slice of the uh, gun violence pie, but they have an enormous uh, symbolic uh, meaning to people uh, in that they were made to do one thing and do that one thing very well. So what we're arguing about is a perception, not a definition. We're arguing about a concept, not a piece of hardware. and. Um, this argument's going to go on forever. I mean, that's just the way people are. In my view, there's over 300 million guns out there. Um, they're not going away. We better learn how to accommodate this presence in our society, uh, or we'll just keep arguing. That's it for me. Um, Mark? I mean, I would agree with Greg. I mean, the, the term assault weapon, AR-15s are similar, is overblown as far as the use. Yes, in a number of states, you don't have to be, you don't have to be licensed to have them, but the, for the use and issues that we deal with, in my cases, oftentimes it's a school massacre, it's, it's a smaller item, it's more of a, I agree, it's more of a perception and a concept than it, an actual use. Um, they're gonna be there, whether we like it or not, whether they're automatic or, or not. And Great, thank I you. would rather deal with the issue of accessibility annium versus the actual weapon itself. Great. Jim. Oh, yeah, that's a weapon right there. Yes. <laughs> My goodness. Um, yeah, I mean, I think kind of we're all in the same ballpark as far as, listen, it's, it's just a gun. I mean, it may be a different kind of gun, but the so-called assault weapon term didn't even exist in the civilian world until about the 1990s. It was just kind of a term made up, as far as we're concerned, to scare people. Um, you know, the AR has been in civilian hands since the 1950s. So what's changed? It, the gun hasn't changed. The people have changed. And again, you know, I keep repeating this, but it's the human element. There's people out there that really just shouldn't be out there, period. Never mind have access to guns. They shouldn't have access to us, period. And a lot of it has to do with our failure in mental health. And I understand the medical community's fear of going back to the days of putting people away because they remember the snake pits from the old movies and, and they weren't good places. But there is a very small percentage, whatever that percentage is, of people that just shouldn't be walking amongst us. So, uh, you know, I, I came up on this question. I, I want to say, when was the... Um, it, it was the Christmas party murders. San Bernardino, was it? Yeah. Um, 
and I was doing a radio show about it, and I think it was WBUR, and the, and the host said, well, Jim, do you think terrorists should have access to assault weapons? And I said, well, I don't know. What kind of guns should they have access to? And the point is, they shouldn't have access to anything. Never mind assault weapons. They shouldn't have access to, to anything. So there you have it in a short. Okay. Thank you. Uh, question number two. Um, let's see. The most dangerous weapons in the world are kept safe and well-managed by our well-regulated United States military forces. What can we learn from our highly respected branches of the military about the safe storage and management of lethal weapons through training, supervision, and controlled access? Uh, I have a feeling all three of these gentlemen are going to want this with their backgrounds. I think this is a question that does a, an excellent job of answering itself. Uh, it just said the whole thing right here. I'd just like to add to Jim's point that the overlap between mental illness and uh, mass murder is infinitesimal, even smaller by far than the percentage of involvement of uh, so-called assault weapons in mass shootings. So in a way, this whole mental health issue becomes a uh, just something we can say, well, it's not the guns, let's deal with mental health. Well, if it were that simple, I'd be all for it. But mental health, as we'll all acknowledge, is a very deep and complex matter. If there was a simple way to deal with this, I would have hoped we would have found out about it now. But just saying we've got to address mental health is sort of equivalent to saying, well, we ought to take all the guns away. It's a lot more complicated than that. What do we learn from the military? Well. Mark, what do we learn from the military? <laughs> <laughs> well, we learned from the military because I, I was a company commander for a number of units, and, and we would have, obviously, saves, sign-outs, accountability. You had a double sign-out. We had locked within that type of situation. So we have that accountability. You're not going to have that in the public, but clearly having weapons locks, having uh, locks, storage of locks, safes is, is, is a plus. I have a concern with often parents that leave their, their pistols in their nightstand in their bedroom for, so that so they have easy, quote, accessibility to the, if there's a burglar. The flip side is if you leave it like that, you then have the kids who find it, who unwittingly play with it and discover much to the tragedy that they should have been playing with it. So yes, I, I would stress for, for parents especially more, because who really gets killed oftentimes is your own children, is that you have, have, have to have some sort of common sense regarding securing them so it's a combination of yes, if you need it accessible, it, it is, but two, it's safe. Leaving it loaded in a nightstand or leaving it loaded in a closet is not safe. All you're doing is realistically putting your children at risk versus the, quote, unknown burglar. And that, that would be my position on that is you got to keep them secure. And parents, you got to use common sense. I mean, part of the problem I'm, I'm concerned about is we legislate so much in this country to include in, in with the firearms because it seems we have checked individual responsibility at the door. And so that instead of screwing down families, parents, individuals, communities, 
you know, the proverbial, it takes a village. If you police yourself and you use common sense into who has access, we may not be in this boat. Because we apparently don't, or a small percentage doesn't, which gets blown up, then we put law on law on law on law. And so the 99.9% to com comply with the law becomes more onerous because of that, but I also put the, the onus on those 99.9% that fail to police themselves, fail to ensure that doesn't happen, so we don't have to do legislation, which as Jim said, it becomes in the eyes of the beholder whether uh, the red flag is good or is bad or what we go from there. We're doing it because your neighbor, your friend, your family member of the village doesn't have enough responsibility to say there's an issue. So every time we check our individual responsibility at the door, we should expect that somewhere down the road, local level, state level, or federal level, we're going to try to put a panacea on call a law to fix it, which 99.910 makes it worse. But again, I blame us as individuals. And I'll stand up and take the blame too. But that's, that's the key area, not just in guns, but in my bugaboo and everything else. If someone isn't responsible, if someone texts while driving, we need to do a statute because they're not responsible enough to put the damn phone where they're driving. And they're often the ones who don't get hurt. It's the other party, the innocent bystander. We have the same thing here. If we don't figure out how to take individual responsibility, we'll be having these two sides arguing on either more or what we've got doesn't work. You know, I'm glad he brought up texting and driving because I often jokingly use that in testimony in the State House that, you know, if you want to talk about gun safety, if you ever go to one of our shooting ranges and you see a sign that says no texting and shooting, then come talk to me about safety. So, but in just, the biggest problem is education, education. Probably about, I'd say 25% of goals budget is spent on firearm safety education and education about the laws. The laws in Massachusetts are so complex, they're virtually impossible to follow. I mean, there's a, there's a retired police chief who publishes a 400-page book and gives five-hour seminars on how to begin to understand the Massachusetts gun laws. But with that, it is our responsibility as gun owners to be safe and to teach others how to be safe. Uh, one of the problems we have at the state level is they barely want to acknowledge the presence of firearms in the state, so they don't want to take part in firearm safety education training. And case in point is, in the 2014 bill, I had a meeting with the speaker at that time, and I said, you know, the state collects millions of dollars every single year in license fees, but doesn't spend a single penny on firearm safety education. And he asked me, he says, well, what can we do to start? And I said, how about just some simple public service announcements, some PSAs, about the importance of safe storage and how to do it in Massachusetts, and the importance of firearm safety education training and how to go about getting it. We passed that into law five years ago. Anybody ever seen a PSA on that? Never been done. Five years later, still not one penny. But that does not, as Mark said, give us a pass on individual responsibility. Is it upon ourselves as gun owners to be safe, to teach others how to be safe, 
to teach the next generation how to be safe. So that is absolutely incumbent upon us. I always encourage, and Goal always encourages, train, 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 and when you think you know it all, go back and review it at the same time. Great, thank you. Um, and by the way, thank you for keeping these questions coming. We got a fistful right now, which is good. Um, by the way, can everyone hear all right? Are you okay up there? Yeah, how about up there? Okay, good, great. Uh, this question's from Mark Nestor. That'd be you, Mark. Well, lucky me. Okay. Um, Where'd you get this? Why should I not be able to purchase a new competitive target model AR-15 style semi-auto rifle in Massachusetts to be able to shoot at matches around the world? Well, as my position has been before, I. I don't hold that the, I hold the Second Amendment should be there. AR-15s, I have a mixed concern on. I guess my question would be whether they should be banned or not is not a question for me. My question is who should get the AR-15s to shoot competitively? I've got members within my post that have AR-15s, that practice with them, type of situation. But my issue is more that AR-15s, you know, pistols, long rifles, whatever, they're all weapons. Uh, automatic weapons, I'd have a problem with. But single-shot weapons, no, I wouldn't have a problem with. My issue goes back to, again, that I think there are people that can access, and not so much in Massachusetts. When I, when I preach access, I'm really preaching more nationwide because I made the mistake yesterday reviewing a synopsis of the various gun laws in the various in all 50 states and it's mind-boggling the disparity between each state massachusetts is somewhat well regulated you look down to places like south carolina and florida where you can buy multiple weapons at the same time you can buy you know, there's no license for assault weapons you don't have to register oftentimes for weapons you don't have to register at all to carry weapons either concealed or not and so my push has been we make it uniform throughout all 50 states so we don't go form shopping for weapons. So people who might not be able to qualify in Massachusetts for a weapon can go down to another state and draw them. And as I said, it was mind-boggling when I discovered that technically someone who's a foreign national can go into most states if they have a hunting license, period, a piece of paper they pay 35 bucks for and that entitles them to buy weapons. That just mind boggles me in the, in the discovery. That's been sitting there for years. It just horrifies me, especially with after 9-11. This is a concern. So my, my response would be, if you're licensed and you're licensed properly, personally, I might have a different opinion that I would have an opinion for this, but you're entitled to go to competitive, to shoot. Greg or Jim, anything to add to that? Nope. Okay. Don't get us started. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I was just informed that that uh, was collected by Jim, but I bought by Mark. It was not a question for Mark, so I. You got to answer it, Mark. So. Like, a great job. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, that won't happen again, but there is a question directed directly at Jim Wallace. Oh, good. 
Um, and the question is, what is the purpose of a high-powered gun? High-powered gun. Yeah, you got to define a high-powered gun. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, I'm just going to assume this means probably an AR. Um, actually, and I wish I could have brought them here to show you, but it's a school, so I can't. Um, I usually carry a couple of dummy cartridges with me to show people. The cartridge that the AR-15 fires is actually one of the smallest manufactured centerfire rifle rounds in existence, period. It's tiny compared to most rifles. Anybody out there that knows about, you know, rifles 30-06, 308, you know, 7.62, those are kind of minimal high-power rifles, but they certainly get bigger, much bigger. Um, you know, they don't hunt elephants with a 223 or even deer. I mean, a 223 is legitimately a varmint round. It was designed to wound, not kill. Unfortunately, it can kill in the wrong hands, but so you really have to identify what you mean by, by high power because there's such an infinite range of, of power in a, in a center fire or rifle cartridge. So I don't know if I can answer it any further than that without a specific point. I mean, I think the issue is every weapon's high power. It's, sen it, it's sensible at a, at a high velocity to strike a target. Period. So, I mean, I think in this point, you know, if you're talking about AR-15s, it's a different story, but I would think other ones even have a higher velocity, so it's a weapon. Yeah, here again, we can go back and forth all day. Uh, yeah, the 223 round is a lot lighter, but the muzzle velocity is a lot higher. Uh, you could rank uh, guns by their ability to harm people, killability. And one of the things that people don't like about ARs is you can swap that mag out without even taking the thing down from your shoulder, which makes it possible to deliver a lot more rounds on a target in a lot shorter period of time. Simple. Okay. Thank you. With the advent of uh, 3D printing, how will any gun bans be effective? Are they effective now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those subjects that when you, when you get into it, even with the experts of 3D printing, because right now 3D print, printing, you're mostly talking about plastics. You know, maybe, who knows how many years, um, pardon me, you know, you're going to have metal 3D printing, but it's going to be so expensive, it's unbelievable. Um, I, I often joke with the people in the State House that ask me about the current 3D printing and should we worry about criminals using them? And I said, no. I said, Darwin will take over from there because I'm not going to be the first to pull the trigger on a plastic gun. Let the criminals do it. You'll cut down on a few, maybe. But um, I, I think this, at least for now, I don't see criminals buying technology to build their own guns, to make their own guns. Um, you can certainly focus things a lot better in other areas if you want to reduce crime guns, <clears throat> which I, I think we can do if we focus on the human element. But right now, I think this is a little bit about tilting in a windmill. Thank you for the question. This uh, next question is from Billy B. 
how can we identify potential shooters without allowing red flag, quote, red flag laws to be misused to infringe on Second Amendment rights? So let me repeat that question. How can we identify potential shooters without allowing red flag laws to be misused to infringe on Second Amendment rights from Billy B? And that's open to anyone. Uh, right after Sandy Hook, uh, which also happened on this date, December 14th, a fellow named Mark Barden, whose six-year-old son was killed, uh, started an outfit called uh, Sandy Hook Promise. And for a while, I couldn't figure out what they were up to because they weren't uh, advocating for better laws or any of this stuff that I was doing for uh, every town and mom's demand. And I'm like, well, what are they up to? Well, it turned out that what they're up to is creating a program that educates uh, teachers, uh, parents, everyone who's involved with kids in this very question that is on this card, how do, I, how do we identify kids at risk for violent behavior and what do we do about it? So if you want to answer that question, I urge you all to go to the website of Sandy Hook Promise and check out what they're all about. This is not legislative, this is educational. Uh, they've already documented that they've actually uh, stopped potential school shootings because of their ability to identify kids at risk. So there is a body of knowledge out there. It's a work in progress, but there are groups that are working on this. It has nothing to do with guns, has nothing to do with Second Amendment. It has to do with identifying children at risk. Yeah, uh, just a little bit. It's, you know, the red flag bill, we know we have problems with that because of due process or whatever, but we're not going to get into that. Um, it, kind of in line with Greg, it's, it's virtually, I don't know if it's impossible, but it's pretty tough to identify somebody who may be X. But it's not impossible to identify someone in trouble. Um, and I actually had a, a good friend, uh, Jeff Walker, who had a pretty decent outlook on this. He was a teacher, and I'm going to date myself, teacher corps. Remember back in the 70s? He was part of that. And he said, if you look at some of these killers, they're all about two or three years out of school. And his, at least, hypothesis was they're at least getting some attention in school. Maybe not everything they need, but they're getting something. And as soon as we hand them a diploma, they're off the grid. And now nobody's paying attention to what their needs may be how bad they're getting or better they're getting so it's it's very difficult to identify what specifically they may do but if if you're trained in the early signs of trouble that we can at least try to intervene and i think that's where we need to be we've come a long way in recognizing mental health as we should but i still think there's a long way for us to go to make sure that they don't end up with a stigma over them because they asked for help and I know the veterans face that just to, to this day. They, they don't want to ask for help because they know what it means. We have to encourage our kids that if you're in trouble or if you think a friend is in trouble, you've got to come forward and try to get them some help. And we have to make sure that they don't have a stigma over their head for doing so.
I would agree with Jim, but the big problem we have, especially with the veterans are, um, that if you identify you have, or law enforcement, if you identify you have a problem, and a lot of places to include the VA, unfortunately, um, you're diagnosed with a problem without a solution. But as soon as you come forward, either as a police officer, a fireman, or military, and say, I have a problem, the military still gives lip service to it. It won't impact on you. That's BS. There will. So you will have colonels that are in charge of brigades that have severe psychological issues, probably because it's their third or fourth tour, that can't admit it because as soon as they do, they pull off the line, it goes in their OER, they'll never have a command again. In fact, they may get discharged. So we leave these time bombs in place wherever they are because the society, the VA, the military still treats them as an anathema if they admit that they're not perfect. And I agree that on the, on the school level, we need to identify more education, more programs, so we, we teach those how to do it. But we still need society to acknowledge that you may not be perfect, but you're still a human being, and we respect for who you are, and we respect for you for the fact that you're trying to solve the problem, not bury it. Because as long as we still maintain that stigma, it's going to be the, the dog chasing his tail for the rest of life, and the problem we're having, especially my concern with the veterans, are that the suicide rate of veterans, because they've been isolated, grows and grows. And for my generation of Vietnam veterans, we got the same suicide rate is the Iraq Afghanistan veterans, which is scary, because we had 40 years of being ignored and never treated at all. And from the day we left, there was no such thing as PTSD. We were all gold-breaking it. And that bore on those people for 40 years who now, you get out of high school, you've got nothing to do, you're now a Vietnam vet, kids are graduated, kids are married, kids have moved away, you're, you're retired. It's just you and your wife are by yourself, and you have all this time to dwell, and you're a ticking time bomb. Thank you. Um, the next uh, question is, what states have the lowest rate of uh, gun deaths? And uh, I would, in, if, in, if you have that information available in the, you know, in the, the lower. Somebody out there likes me. <laughs> Massachusetts because we got the best gun laws. That's my, that's my point of view. Oh, Hawaii, Hawaii is right up there too. Now, gosh, let's figure out they're an island. They can't get crime guns across the border as easily. Um, well, maybe it's just an accidental correlation. I don't know. You want I know your NFC is coming. <laughs> He's, already He's already handed me the mic. Yeah. Well, you know, here's the, where it kind of changes, because what do you mean by lowest gun death rate? Because if you're just talking overall, you know, you have to include accidents, suicides, and homicides. Um, Massachusetts, actually the reason we have a low overall gun death rate actually has nothing to do with our gun laws. It's because Massachusetts has a very low suicide rate as compared to the rest of the country. We're usually like number three or four to the bottom of the list for all suicides, not just gun suicides. 
But if you want to look at actual homicides with guns, in the 14 years after the gun laws were passed, homicides in Massachusetts with guns actually doubled. And if you want to look at violent crime as a whole, which is just isn't guns, the FBI considers Massachusetts to be the most violent state in Northeast America when adjusted for population. Not my numbers, it's the FBI numbers. So if you want to call them liars, go ahead, call them liars. If you want to talk about the, the, uh, the homicide rate with guns in Massachusetts, you've got to blame the state because that's where we get the numbers from. It's not even debatable. So in Massachusetts, after the 1998 laws, it became so difficult to become a lawful gun owner that licensed gun ownership dropped by 85%, but gun-related homicides doubled. So where in the world did the success come from mass gun laws? They didn't. It's a false narrative covered up by a low suicide rate. And the reason we have a low suicide rate is because of our access to health care. If you look at the states with low suicide rates, New York, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., Massachusetts, all have really high homicide rates, but low suicide rates because of our access to health care. So until we actually get the real word out that these gun laws are not only not working, they're punishing a whole sector of society by taking away their civil rights and not working at the same time. Is that good? Yeah, kind of, sort of. All right. I, 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 Ain't numbers wonderful? Here's my concern. I, I agree with both of them to a point. The problem I have is because the gun licensing laws are not uniform through all 50 states, we may crank it down in Massachusetts so lawful gun owners' registration goes down, but that doesn't mean that the ones who want guns can just go down to South Carolina where we do not have such a restriction and can buy seven or eight guns without any proof, drive back to Massachusetts because we have disparate regulations and kill. Until we have all 50 states have the same access, restriction, regulation, we're just gonna pick and choose. It's like shopping for a car. You're gonna go to a different location to get one you like. We're just gonna go to a different state that has a different regulation, pick them up. People are smart in this day and age bring them back to Massachusetts. So again, you look at these stats, I guarantee if we look at all 50 other states for their stats, they're going to be divergent depending on how the gun laws are. Thank you. Um, by the way, I, I meant to say it in the beginning, uh, we, uh, it, by the way, it's 11 o'clock, we have a half an hour. Um, one of the things, uh, Let's, if we can, save any applause to the end. Um, just, uh, it um, eats into time, I'll keep my mouth shut. Um, can you explain how red laws violate our due process rights? On the problem of individual responsibility, uh, we could fix that right away by making guns be like cars. 
right? You got to register them, you got to insure them, and you are responsible for that ownership all the way through. Even if we did that, even if I were the king and I got it done, it wouldn't address the two-thirds of gun deaths that are suicides. So my point is that all this legislation, while it may be important, isn't the answer. Jim, you probably got an answer to this one here. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest problem with the law that was passed is that there's no due process. And what we feared was, and there hasn't been a lot of them, as far as I know, filed. I think the last report I saw was 17. Um, but it was supposed to be about family and friends, but most of these red flags have been actually posted by law enforcement, and they already had that authority, and that's what I tried to tell people in the state house. but whatever. The other thing is we feared that most of them would be emergency orders, which means you don't even know what's going on until you get a knock at the door and somebody's taking your license and confiscating your property, and you don't even get a... a, a two seconds before a judge before you've lost your rights. Now a lot of people say, well, we're trying to be proactive and make sure it stops. Well, one of the other things that's, that's brand new that we've never seen before is that if you are subject to an emergency order and you wish to appeal it, you lose not only possession of your property, but ownership. That's never happened because you wish to appeal something. And, and this is part of the problem of not having everybody at the table. This could have, we missed an historic opportunity to really do good things in this state. And we lost it because people didn't want to sit down and talk the way we're doing now. I mean, we had an amendment to that bill that would just simply put together a commission, not a BS blue ribbon do nothing, but a true professional commission to study the needs of mental health and suicide prevention in this state. And we couldn't even get that in the bill. So if we're talking about suicide, that's what the bill was supposed to be about, suicide prevention and also mass murder prevention. And we can't do all this other stuff. We've lost our way. And that's the problem. Because, I'll, and I'll tell you this, two days before that bill was debated, for months and months and months, the title of that bill was an act relative to suicide prevention and I, I forget the other piece it was like mass murder two days before the bill was debated the title of the bill was changed to an act relative to gun licensing wait a minute what happened what happened to the bill and we were told that night the bill being debated that everybody not just us who had all these mental health amendments that they'd be ruled out of order because this was no longer a mental health bill, this was a gun licensing bill. And that's where you lose the gun owners. And you shouldn't have. You should have had them at the table, even if it's not me, and you should have had them with you all along, and they didn't. And now they've sunk a divide between us and the people who supposedly want safety. Can't allow that to happen and, and do good things. I think the issue becomes, and, it's a, and, it, and it's, it's a troubling issue, but it's an issue that will be addressed, is the red flag is, is perceived to be there's an immediate threat. So unfortunately, sometimes with a red flag, you have to act first and deal with it later. The problem with not only do you lose possession, but ownership is how do you red flag if you allow them to keep the weapon? You just can't use it. 
You do the same thing with domestic relations. I mean, you have people who are being violated to have the right to get in there, what they call an ex parte restraining order, which is only good for 10 days, so it, it lifts, it suspends the immediate threat. That's all it does. It keeps the status quo. The victim is protected for the 10 days. The other party is entitled to come in the next 10 days and argue why the, why the, the restraining order should be lifted or not lifted. And that's a critical time because I would hate to make a mistake of not allowing this when someone's at risk, either through having a weapon or someone's at risk through domestic violence saying, we've got to give you 10 days before we can give the order, and in 10 days, God knows what's going to happen, and we're going to have to say we're sorry. Um, I agree though with Jim that it needs, there should be a second step to the red flag is if you've identified this person and the person is at risk to himself, then we need to give them an option, how do we fix them? Which and I will agree, and unfortunately we don't, which is flag and say, that's it. Because back to the stigma. You had been identified for whatever reason, but we don't have any resources to help you. I mean, the, the, the mental health resources in Massachusetts are stretched. But we need to do, if we're going to identify someone as being at risk, we need to offer immediate resource that can help him so he doesn't have the stigma forever. And that part I would agree with Jim, we need to extend, but I would disagree that we need to have the red flag. Okie doke. Uh, the next question is from Army veteran Anthony Cluley. How can we use the actions of less than 1% as a precedent for gun regulations for everyone else? How can we use the actions of less than 1% as presidents, presidents, I'm left-handed, uh, for gun regulations for everyone else as a president? Did, uh, am, I, am I clear now? I had help. My time would be the 1% can create so much havoc and destruction if they're left unfettered, and if the rules and regulations, and again, I'll say, almost everybody in this room here comply with the regulations. They're good gun owners. They take care, they're careful. They're not lunatics that go out running around this high school or someplace else shooting up the place. But we have enough just by the fact is we've had, I think, 12 school shootings this year. I think I did, when I did 2018, we're like, 28 school shootings. So we have kids that have died because some lunatic, old or young, was able to get access to weapons. And that's the concern I have, is that we need our job as parents are to protect our children. If the regulations we have for the 99 help us stop the 1%, then they're worth it. And that's why, you know, I call upon the 99%. If you want to lessen the regulations, you, we have to come up with some way through discourse that we can identify without laws. If we can't, which we can't for now, I don't want another Parkland, I don't want another Virginia Beach, I don't want another one out in, in Colorado type of situation. We have an obligation to defend our children. This is our, this I would hope as parents is our sole goal in life. 
And if I can stop someone killing my children by regulating guns, access to guns, I will. And I won't apologize for that to the other 99% because most of them are parents too. And I would hope they would not want to have the knock on the door or read in the, on video and TV that their, their son's high school is under lockdown. Just very quickly, we're only humans. We're just doing the best we can. Laws are one of the one kind of the ways we have to try to keep a handle on this problem. I just asked Anthony Cluley uh, what he suggests as an alternative. I mean, we got to try to get a handle on this somehow. Well, it's, it's kind of an interesting question because I, I spoke at a sociology class in Suffolk a, a while back. And the teachers, uh, sorry, the professor and the students were kind of pressing me on mandatory background checks. But just as um, an exercise, I wanted them, because it's a sociology class, they said, well, first of all, before you get there, tell me why you need background checks. And they obviously said this, the, the obvious statement was, well, there's dangerous people out there. We don't want to have guns. And I said, really, what, what kind of dangerous people? Well, either, either people who've committed nasty crimes or somebody with mental, severe mental health. And I said, well, for this discussion, let's set aside the mental health, because that's a huge subject, and we've already covered that a little bit today. And I said, but how do background checks work for the criminally dangerous? And they said, well, we check your records, and, and we see you know, if you have anything before we let you buy a gun. And they said, okay. I said, so answer me this. Why are we okay as a society with criminals who have maybe done their time, but if we don't trust them to own a gun, why are we okay with them walking amongst us? And, and I understand the complexities of that question. It wasn't meant as a panacea, but it was meant to make them think about we don't want permanent incarceration in this country. We absolutely don't. We're, you know, we're not the Soviet blocs or anything like that. But we have never had a discussion as a society in this country since I've been alive about who we trust walking amongst us. And, if, and to some extent, if I don't trust you with a gun, I sure as hell don't trust you with a car. I sure as hell don't trust you around my child or my grandchild or my wife. So, but how come we never want to have those discussions? And it's because sometimes, most of the time, especially in the state house, the thing is so much easier to talk about. The human element is scary because it's going to take massive programs and huge amounts of money. And yeah, we don't want bad people to have access to guns. But again, I don't want them to have access to my wife, period. By the way, a um, comment came in that said 1% uh, of the United States population is 3.5 million people. The, um, and this was, I think, just covered, but I'm going to say it anyway. What exactly laws would you suggest to stem gun violence in Massachusetts? And I think that that was pretty much just covered. Am I you in agreement? 
I'm not going to pass this one up. Are you kidding me? You know, number, number one, I always have to caveat this with Massachusetts gun laws need to be completely redone so they're understandable, period, because they're not understandable. Anybody who sits through our class or Chief Glidden's class, you'll learn that so fast it's not even funny. One of the things that, that really bothers me is that even the good stuff that we passed, almost all the criminal language in the 2014 bill came from us. We put it in, and it's not being used. Almost all of the school safety stuff that was passed in 2014 is not being used because it was all subject to appropriation, and appropriations were never made. So until we're going to get serious, now one of the problems is, too, when we have conversations, is you have to make sure you have the same definitions as the person you're having a conversation with. Because a lot of times when, when people say gun violence, they mix in accidents, suicides, and homicides, or at least crime. And you really can't because they all have three different means of solving a problem. Gun violence is, is everywhere now. It's not just focused in the, in the inner cities. And we hate the term gun violence because you're singling out a thing. Violence is violence, period. So how do you stop it? Well, it's so attached to the drug trade in Massachusetts, it's not even funny. You look at towns like New Bedford that used to be awesome places. You know, Fitchburg, Pittsfield, well, Springfield's always been a little tough, but, um, but those are all stopping grounds for drugs moving north, and they have become very violent places. The bottom line is, even the gun laws we have are not being enforced. We actually have a social media chain for over a year now, and you hate to put the blame on judges, but it's called hashtag MA Court Fails. And time and time and time again, every week, we see people that are on their third arrest, felony convictions, possession of a gun, and they're out on bail. My favorite was a guy from Worcester this past summer got arrested, possession of an AK-47, not the ones we play with, the real one, eradicated serial number, 25,000 bags of heroin. He was out on bail in two days. Two weeks later, arrested for guess what? 10,000 bags of heroin and another AK-47. There is no way that guy should have been walking the streets. My, my own staffer was walking his German Shepherd where he lives. And the German Shepherd, it was a school grounds that they were just walking around. And they found a lunch bag. And he figured, oh, my dog's trying to get that some kid's sandwich that he dropped. Picked up the lunch bag. It was a handgun and bags of heroin. So he called the police and they said, oh, we thought he might have come through here. Not only was he out on bail, he had an ankle bracelet. And they were chasing him. And he had a handgun and heroin. So even the laws we don't agree with, even the laws we help pass, they're not being used. So why have them? Well, that's how I started out my uh, speech. It was a law that we had that made it possible for the kid to get his gun that killed my son. Just saying. I would also say about the uh, terrible, impenetrable, difficult laws of Massachusetts that stand in the way of gun ownership. When I took my course with Norm there, he did a great job in an hour and a half making it very clear to me what was and what wasn't legal. It's not that hard, and you don't see that many uh, honest gun owners being arrested for accidentally violating some confusing 
Massachusetts law. I agree with your point about not being enforced, but I go, I read the paper and here's a guy who's driving down Washington Street on his fifth drunken driving arrest and he's still driving around. He's not in jail. I mean, we're failing on all kinds of levels, Jim, and it's yeah. not just the gun thing. There's one other thing, it's so simple-minded that people might tend to forget it. There is one direct correlative between these incidents of gun violence uh, that happens everywhere, and it's the, I'm gonna say it, ability to get a gun, just saying. Almost as a follow-up to that from um, Josh Yorich. Uh, can you comment on the role of law-abiding gun owners in preventing violent crimes? Can you comment on the role of law-abiding gun owners in preventing violent crimes? I think violent crime happens in an environment where the uh, civic legal system has broken down, mostly, and uh, people who live in that area take the law unto themselves, become the law. Uh, Jim will agree with me that most of the urban gun violence happens in very specific, very narrow, particular areas. And these are areas where the civic body, society, isn't functioning. It's broken. And what happens is you get this endless chain of, uh, he did it to me, so I'm going to do it to him, going to do it to him, going to do it to him, and this keeps rolling what honest gun dealer what, what honest gun owners can do is um, try to support initiatives in the inner city that, that are going to clean this kind of thing up i mean uh, we're broken in a lot of parts of the state it's something we can all do something about by paying attention to the situation on the ground by paying attention to who our politicians are and what they're doing there's a lot of stuff we can do and we're not doing it because we're i don't know maybe we're confused maybe we're thinking of the wrong kinds of things I think another way that responsible gun owners is you need to teach your children that issue. I mean, too often you read about these mass shooters at these high schools, these elementary schools, where the fellow students will come up later and say, well, he ran it and raved, but we didn't think it was serious. But he ran it and raved. Or he watched mass videos and bragged about it, but we didn't think it was serious. I mean, I think the responsible gun owners need to teach their children if you see these kind of videos, Snapchats, Twit, Twitter, whatever, yeah, I know. <laughs> Don't laugh. My face, Instagram, whatever, Snapchat. Do I have them all? Thank you. Um, that they need to <laughs> they need to tell the children you need to raise the issue. You just can't be well. I don't want to be standing up in the crowd that I'm, I'm, I'm ratting on, on my fellow student or whatever, it's serious, because a lot of these ones you, you read about recently, it's been posted before something happens and people slough it off. And unfortunately, your, your children can be the best earlier warning system when these things are happen, so someone responsible can intervene become, before it becomes fatal. So I think you need to drum into your kids Raising, telling your parents that we've seen this issue is not a crime. You're trying to protect your, your fellow students, your fellow classmates. And I would think that's one of the big issues that, that re responsible gun owners can do 
have their kids turn into early warning systems. They're not finks, they're not snitches, they're just protecting themselves and their fellow students. Ditto. No. Um, <laughs> well, some of this too, and I'm, I'm sure Josh might be also saying that, you know, people who lawfully carry for self-defense, are they a deterrent to violent crime? You, you know, you can argue back and forth on that all day long, but I would say that those of us who carry for self-defense, um, you know, to us it's just like a tool. And I, and I have people from the other side who kind of go over the top and say, well, you guys are just looking for a reason to get into a gunfight. Is any gun owner in this room looking for a gunfight? Not me. Uh-uh. No way. Matter of fact, everybody I know that carries, they will go out of their way to avoid a situation because they know in their mind not only their responsibility, but they know where they live. And even if their life may be in jeopardy, if you pull a gun in this state in self-defense, your life's over, and you know that. But you also know the responsibility of the gun is your very last means. Your first means is to get the heck out of Dodge. You know, if I'm out to dinner with my wife and she still laughs at me all this time, she goes, you know, you always do sit at the table with your back to the window and your face to the door, don't you? And I said, yeah, because my job is not to stand and fight. My job is to get you out of here, period. So, I mean, a good example is we had a board member, this is probably 15 years ago, uh, Jim Miller, Jim, he's passed now, but Jim made me look tiny. He was huge. And he was inside a, a convenience store in downtown Worcester, and a robbery took place. Uh, Jim's huge, and he's carrying. And the robber just took the money and left, and the police came and interviewed everybody. And, and first thing, right away, Jim went up to the office, and here's my license, here's my ID, just wants you to know I'm carrying. And the officer says, well, why didn't you stop it? And he goes, I'm not going to risk my life or even that criminal's life for 50 bucks in a cash register. It's not how this works. So uh, do I believe we have an effect on violent crime in places where lawful people are caring for self-defense and they're doing so responsibly? Yes, it absolutely can. Is it the panacea? No way. Because of everything that my colleagues just here talked about. If you're talking about true inner city gun violence, I mean, what is it, sometimes within two blocks, right? A block uh, of where the problems are. And, you know, I actually had a very good, not to get too far to, into the weeds, had a very good conversation with a representative, China Tyler, who represents some of the badder places of Boston. And she asked me, you know, what do you think we can do? And I legitimately said, the biggest problem I have, even if I had the answers, knowing the culture, Somebody who looks like me cannot walk into inner city Boston and tell them how to fix things. It has to come from within. We can help. We should help. But it has to come from within that society. We, um, by the way, you all, uh, we've got another 10 questions. We're not going to, I know we've got five minutes left. These gentlemen have, I think, done a, a fabulous job today. And, um, but I'm going to just ask a, a couple more that I'm going to just pick up uh, uh, randomly. And uh, I, uh, at this time, would also like to thank each and every one of you, not only for showing up, but also uh, for participating in the way that you did today. I, I've learned a lot. 
Um, yeah, this is to you. It, this sort of follows up on a question that was asked. Um, do you think that violent, violent video games has desensitized the reality of guns and how harmful they can be? We have a yes? Yes. Yes. But I don't, I think it can also be a red hair. It's sort of like the mental health issue. Well, it's the, it's the fault of video games. It's not the fault of guns. Eh, I don't believe it. One violent video game, maybe not. But when you have the kids that are so addicted they're to play the games first thing in the morning to late at night to include young adults who are out of high school, out of college, and they binge for days living on these video games. Yeah. And I'll throw it back on the ones with the violent video games for the kids. They become desensitized, but my comment is, where the hell are the parents? To allow the kids to be on video games six, seven, eight hours a day. Yeah, if you watch Murder and Mayhem for six or eight hours, you have become desensitized. If you can kill 500 bad guys in video games in three hours, you feel like you're John Wayne and off you can go. So it's real easy either to not care about what happens on the outside or, or just shrug your shoulders because it's just, for them, it's just another game. And I'll go back to the thing I've been hopping all along, responsibility, responsibility, responsibility. Kids don't play eight hours of video games if the parents don't let them. Hi, my name's Jim. I'm a gamer. <laughs> um, to, to some extent, it's, it's, it's all there, but I, I want to make an observation that I make a lot when I get out to these forums, these types of forums. The other thing I think we're facing, and I'm not a child psychologist or anything like that, but it's just an observation. We are witnessing the first generation of kids that are now becoming adults that were raised by somebody other than their parents. First generation in American history. Because I, I look at our grandson, and it breaks my heart. Three months old, where is he? Daycare. He's being raised by somebody other than his parents. This is the first American generation of kids, regardless of how they act or say, have a disconnect from their family. And you know, you can say, well, it takes a village to raise a child. Damn it, it takes parents to raise a child. One parent, single mom, whatever. I was, I had a single mom from when I was really young. But you know what? I had a mom. And if I had one wish to fix, and this isn't guns, but this is the economy, and this isn't sexist because I don't care who does it. If I had one wish to fix our faults in, in this country, is to put a parent back in the home if they wish to be. I told my wife when we first married, I said, honey, if you can make all the money, I'll raise the, I'll raise the child, keep the house, because she might be raising a canoe and a tree stand and whatever else, but she'll be there with me. I don't care, I'll do it. But put a parent back in the home. You can. We can talk about a lot of the evils that have happened in our society, but you can trace them almost all back to pulling parents out of the house. 
What was her answer? <laughs> she said, show me the job. <laughs> okay, uh, one last question. Again, um, thank you for, I mean, we've got, some, still have a handful of great questions, but this will be the last one. We said 11.30, we'll do 11.30. Um, um, to the panel, could you, uh, could you comment on media coverage? How it may encourage copycat actions? Uh, one of my sidelines is I write op-eds for newspapers, the New York Times in particular, and I had one great op-ed that had the uh, unusual distinction of being rejected by the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. And uh, my contention was that because of the way mass shootings are presented in the news, they become commodified. They're a, they're a product. Mass murder reporting is a product that we consume as news junkies. And because newspapers and televisions and all these media are in the business, they need us to survive. They keep broadcasting. They keep giving us this information because we want it. Well, it's interesting about all kinds of mass shootings. People have figured out that they're creepy memes that evolve based on prior information. And here are our major media presenting this information to potential mass murderers in abundance. So what my editorial said was, how many mass shootings do you think there'd be if after Columbine we declared a moratorium on this kind of reporting? Uh, the guys at the New York Times said, well, that's a very interesting line. We uh, thought about it a lot, but we decided that's not really the way we present the news. Well, I'm sorry, we're all complicit in this cycle of presenting mass violence, and I think it does provide information to mass shooters. I think we really got to look at the media, and I'm not talking like Fox, I'm not talking any of this stuff, I'm just saying we got to look at the way the media has responsibility for this problem as well. Unfortunately, I got to disagree. I'm, I'm concerned when you start censoring the media. Um, you censor the media, things are going to get out, they're going to get out distorted, especially this day and age, if, 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 you, if you censor Fox News, NBC, whatever, you have so many other different forms of media that people can get involved in, that what's going to happen is potentially you're going to get a different slant depending on who the media is. And so I don't know where to draw the line. When I watched it in Vietnam where they tried to censor the media over there so they wouldn't find out what the casualties were back here, it didn't matter. Still got out, and the people back home still found out. And the problem is they got, they got a different slant because they got it from different ways. And so I have a concern with when you start censoring the press, then we have the accusations of fake news, fraud news, whatever. You put it all out there, people have to decide what they want to do. And unfortunately, we have too many means of, of, and mediums of, of news these days and news reporting that if we don't let it out, who's going to decide who to censor what? I mean, we're going to create this grand army, say, of 1984, that we're going to have to, everybody's going to have to submit their media to censorship. I don't want that. Let the people hear the news, let the people deal with the news, let the people be learning until they can deal with how to go forward with it. But don't censor it. 
Yeah, I guess, you know, my frustration dealing with the media now professionally for about 20 years is the lack of education they have on, on our subject. If, whether it's a, a mass shooting or even just something that, I shouldn't say just something, but, you know, if you have shooting in Roxbury, my wife will tell you, I'll sit there and watch the news and just bang my head on the table because two-thirds of everything that reporter said was wrong. You know, no, that gun doesn't work that way. No, you can't do that in Massachusetts. No, you know, and it's like, it's so frustrating because the, the news media, and, and actually part of what Mark just said was because anybody with a, a keypad is now a journalist. So they don't have the responsibility that our old journalists used to have that they can be held accountable because if they say something, okay, 50 million other people are saying something. They don't take the time to educate themselves on the facts because you know what? In 30 seconds, that news cycle's over and they're onto something else, they don't care. So to some extent, it's very difficult to hold them accountable to factual reporting because who, do, who are you gonna hold accountable? Well, great. Um... At this time, I'd like to thank the League for bringing us all together. I don't know about you, but I found this to be in incredible, really unbelievable. And to the st students from Gloucester High School who helped out today, thank you. Thank you very much. You were absolutely terrific. And uh, the League of Women Voters, hmm? come on out and take a bow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I, I, I'm going to tell you, this panel that we have is the best, and I appreciate it. They um, they wanted me to provide them coffee and tea today with Dunkin' Donuts and everything else, and I refused to do it, so I brought them in some life lifesavers, and they thanked me, and I couldn't believe that. <laughs> but, but seriously, gentlemen, um, you added so much to the conversation. I don't know how to say thank you, and Greg, I know this is the anniversary, or not the anniversary, the, the date of the loss of your oh, son. Don't you hate that word, man? I mean, no, I hate that. <laughs> no, no, no. A bad day. That's a bad day. And um, we're all uh, very sad. But thank you.